When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Welcome to the Intelligence Squared podcast. I'm producer Catherine Hughes. In today's episode, we bring you part two of our live event, Bach versus Beethoven. This event was hosted by the BBC's Rita Chakrabarti, who was joined by world-renowned cellist Stephen Isselis for Bach and acclaimed music critic Norman Lebrecht for Beethoven. Mishka Rushdie Momin accompanies this conversation on the piano. Part one of this event was released on our last episode and is available now to all our listeners. Do take a listen to that first, if you can. Part three of this conversation is available exclusively to our subscribers. This event took place in April 2023 in Cadogan Hall, London. Stephen is saying he's just going to put his cello away. He will be back. Thanks to him for some very persuasive arguments and some absolutely stunning playing. I, with Mishka as well, that was, I don't know about you, I feel a bit breathless listening to that. Norman has a hard act to follow, but the stage is yours. Thank you. <laughs> My learned adversary has dealt with what I suppose one would call the performative aspect of the matter in hand. He's not here to hear me. I shall try and deal with the informative. He had, of course, the advantage of four strings. I was going to bring my viola, which, is, which was Beethoven's instrument, but Beethoven never wrote anything for viola. And if I had the time, which I don't, I would tell you why, because it'll take 50 minutes of psychoanalysis to explain why, in, in very modern terms, Beethoven turned against the viola. He was quite fond of the cello. 
and indeed of Chellis. One of his best friends was a man called Count Zmeskal, who was a senior civil servant who stole very high quality government paper for Beethoven to write on, and he also tried to get Beethoven to accompany him on brothel crawls. Unsuccessfully, but these cellists know how to live. I must just quickly At say that I've given a recital on Beethoven's own cello in the Beethoven House in Bonn with the great musician Sir Anders Schiff, mm. and um, it was an honour. But sorry, go allegedly on. his own cello, <laughs> <laughs> unless it was stolen from Her Majesty's stationery office. Uh, At the risk of lowering the tone, I'd just like to deal with the philosophical matter for a second. There is a debate between Walter Benjamin and Gershom Scholem as to which is more important. Is it more important to be original, for an artist to be original or transmissible? Is it more important to create something that is unprecedented or something that can be passed on? And here we have the schism, the great division between Bach and Beethoven. Bach is a monumental figure in music. He is the repository of all the music that has come before him, translated into a way that can be handed forward. There is hardly any composer who is more quoted by his successors from Haydn to Shostakovich than Johann Sebastian Bach. There is hardly any composer who is quoted less by his successors than Ludwig van Beethoven. Beethoven's originality was daunting. Everything he did was new. He didn't. Bach, like all composers of his period, quoted from himself, quoted from others, lifted whole concertos of Vivaldi and put them out under his own name with a different solo instrument. Um, <laughs> it was, come on, it was the 18th century, it's what you did. Beethoven is in the 19th century. Beethoven is looking consistently forward in everything that he does, Everything from the very first moment that he sets, forth, sets foot in Vienna is totally and completely new. He comes to Vienna a few months after Mozart's died, and everybody says, oh, he's a talented boy. He could be the next Mozart. Beethoven says, no, do not mistake me for anyone else. I'd like to ask Mishka just to play us a little bit of the Opus 10, number two. It's the fifth piano sonata. It's written for a Mrs. Brown. You heard it. Um, yeah, he was one of Mrs. Brown's boys. It's written for a Mrs. Brown who was the wife of the head of intelligence at the Russian embassy. So she's also Mrs. Putin. Um, and it is one of the ways in which Beethoven says to the world, I am Beethoven, there is no other.
everything he does in this piece says, not Mozart, not anything he can do, I can do better, but no, I'm on, on another planet. I'm, on a, I'm a completely different being from anything that has come before. Haydn, who was his teacher, says to him, Beethoven, please, when you get a publishing contract, your first please, would you mind just saying on the dedication page, a student of yours of Haydn? <laughs> Beethoven says, no, makes him wait to Opus 9. <laughs> He owes nothing to anyone. He is totally aware of his place on earth and his purpose on earth. And if one wants to discover him, well, one of the ways is comparing him in character to Johann Sebastian Bach, because there are such opposites. There is, of course, there is humor in Beethoven, there is lightness in Beethoven, there is self-mockery in Beethoven, which is the most astonishing thing, which you certainly don't find in anybody in the previous century or in his own century. There is a piece that he wrote called Rage Over a Lost Penny. Do you know it? It goes something like this. A man loses a penny, goes behind a sofa. He's, he's, he's desperate to find it because it's his only piece of change for the rich you can buy a pack of cigarettes. And, and the piano playing gets angrier and angrier and angrier. And then it doesn't. And what you realize, this is a self-portrait by Beethoven, this man who's prone to rages, who was a bit of a curmudgeon, but he stops, he pauses, and you realize that the piece is actually sending himself up. No composer of his time, or of a very, very long time afterwards, is able to practice that kind of detachment from himself and his art. Can you imagine Wagner saying, Oh, look, I've just made a joke about myself. <laughs> Differences between Bach and Beethoven. Bach looks backwards, Beethoven relentlessly forward. Bach doffs his cap to authority, Beethoven never does. He actually, there's this story of him walking with Goethe and the emperor walks past. Goethe bows deeply, takes off his cap, Beethoven strides on. He's not paying dues to anyone. Bach lives this very dutiful life. Beethoven lives a chaotic life. Bach always goes to church on a Sunday. Beethoven never goes to church, believes in God, knows that he has a mission in life, never goes to church. Do you know how radical that is? This is in the capital of the Holy Roman Empire in Vienna. Do you know what that is saying to society, apart from the fact that it's also where a composer gets his commissions? Beethoven's saying, I don't need you. I'm Beethoven. I don't need that. Bach has, as you've alluded to, Stephen, a certain amount of fun and 20 children. Beethoven never has sex. Bach obeys all the rules. Beethoven breaks them. He's a student of Haydn. And he starts writing things in five movements. Or later on, a string quartet in seven movements. Or even more radically, the last of his piano sonatas in two movements. How can you write a piano sonata in two movements? That's Beethoven, he does. In terms of other attitudes, the modernity of his attitudes, he's living in Vienna, which is quite a cosmopolitan place. Actually, Leipzig is not that non-cosmopolitan because it's, it's a trading spot. And so Bach does get to meet people of different backgrounds. But what we know of Bach and his attitude to other races, we know from the St. John Passion where he writes some of his most beautiful music to some of the most anti-Semitic passages in the gospel. And in fact, the conductor Robert Shaw, the choral conductor Robert Shaw said once, many of us will never cease to be embarrassed 
by St. John Passion's occasional vehement to vicious racial attribution regarding the crucifixion of Jesus, there can be no doubt that its traditional text has added to the waves of anti-Semitism for generations and centuries since its composition. We have to assume that Bach was anti-Semitic. Beethoven, not at all. He has a very happy friendship with a young medical student who gives him the idea for the first song cycle, Andi Ferner Geliebte. He also is the first to alight upon a young half-African violinist who comes to Vienna, comes from London, uh, a young man by the name of George Augustus Paul Green Bridgetower. Beethoven says, oh, you're a wonderful chap. I'm going to write a uh, violin sonata for us to play. And we're going to play to the whole of Vienna at 8 o'clock in the morning because that's the only slot that I can get. And he is absolutely all over this young man, and there is no hint whatsoever of any of the prejudices that are so embedded and so prevalent in the society of his time. Beethoven treats every human being on merit, and if there is no merit, still treats them as an equal. He is, in many ways, we think of him as perhaps as being a man of growling and gruff and suffering with his deafness and cut off from society and cut off from the world, but he is, in many ways, an exemplary human being and an exemplary artist who loathes one thing above all else, and that is wasting time. He won't let a second of his time be spent on idle socializing or anything else. Do you know Beethoven never sees the sea? He is never curious enough to leave Vienna and go and dabble his toes in the waves because he has something to do in life. He has to compose. He has to be at his desk first thing every morning. No, not first thing, second thing. First, he, buy, he has the most expensive coffee, and he grinds it himself, and he makes his coffee, and then he goes to the piano, and he starts working. And then, towards the end, he simply takes off. He goes into realms that we've never seen before. We can trace it. We can almost date it. With the Hammerklavier Sonata, Opus 106, he says, that's it. He always knows when to stop. He stops after nine symphonies, don't need any more. He stops after 10 violin sonatas. And he stops after McClavier, which is the 29th sonata, saying, I've broken up enough pianos. That's it. I've said all I need to do. But then the bills start coming in from the lawyers because he's been in a three-year litigation over trying to adopt his nephew. And it was the most futile and horrible period in his life in which he hardly composed anything. And he's facing really heavy debts. And a publisher comes along at that time and says, come on, Beethoven, three more sonatas. Go on, give me three more piano sonatas. So he does, but they're unlike any piano sonatas that have ever been written before. And each of them has a movement in which he goes where he treads where no musical astronaut has ever trodden before. And so I'm going to ask Mishka to play the concluding movement of the Opus 109, and you'll see what I'm thinking. This is Beethoven going into realms of the surreal, somewhere extraterrestrial, somewhere that he wants to take us out of ourselves and out of this world.
Thank you, Mishka. Beethoven titles that movement Gesangvoll mit innigsten Empfindung, full of song with the innermost, most introspective sensation. Beethoven is telling us here, as he takes off into his late period, Beethoven is telling us music is not for entertainment, it's not for background, it's not for worship, it's not for consolation. Music is a voyage for each of us, a voyage of self-discovery, a voyage in which we can find ourselves, heal ourselves, be ourselves. Why Beethoven? That's why. <laughs> Thanks for listening to this episode of Intelligence Squared. The third and final part of this debate is exclusively available to our subscribers who can access all episodes ad-free now. This event was produced by executive producer Hannah Kay. We'd love to hear your feedback and what you think we should talk about next, who we should have on and what our future debates should be. Send us an email or a voice note with your thoughts to podcasts at intelligencesquared.com or on Twitter at intelligence2. And if you'd like to hear more, attend some of our excellent events or peruse over 20 years of our back catalogue featuring some of the world's greatest minds, then head over to intelligencesquared.com. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships.